You can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at verses 6 through 13 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Genesis 3, verses 6 through 13. Um, just a reminder, I mean, we're, we're getting toward the end of this series, uh, but why are we in this series? Why are we doing uh, Genesis 1 through 3, a, a series on, on those few chapters of the Bible? This is God's um, opening revelation about the way things really are in the world, about who he is. Uh, he, he's revealing who he is, what he's done in creation, what people are like, what's really wrong with the world, uh, what needs to be fixed and restored and redeemed in salvation. So, so what salvation is, what salvation uh, requires, what has to happen for salvation to work, and what uh, salvation accomplishes. These themes all uh, begin right here at the beginning of the scriptures. We have a clear depiction of what's really wrong with us, what is really wrong with us, especially with our relationships, with regard to our relationships. Um, because God made this world as a place for relationships, and uh, the thing that's mainly wrong with us is uh, affecting primarily those relationships with him and with each other. And so it's, it's a clear depiction that we have here at the beginning of the scriptures, a uh, clear depiction of the world in which we exist. It's a clear depiction of things that are really so familiar to us, probably, that maybe we're just numbed to their existence. And um, so we need to talk about these things. We need to think about these things. I'm, I'm uh, conscious of the fact that... Uh, during this particular sermon series, the sermons have been long, <laughs> because there's a lot to say, and it's very important. It's very foundational. I promise I'll try to scale it back, kind of tighten it up a little bit uh, after this series, but it's, it's been very difficult to approach this series and uh, say everything that needs to be said. Uh, we need to listen to this. This is, this is very important for us. It, it shapes the way that we view the whole scripture, shapes the way we view the whole world and our relationship to God. Um, Particularly, uh, we find that the answers that we're looking for, they don't exist here. The answers that we, we need to the, the problems that we have, they don't exist inside of us. That's very clear from, I think, the last few weeks uh, that we've been looking at Genesis 3, and particularly this week, um, we just don't have the resources to fix what's wrong with the world, what's broken, what we broke. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope for that for true reconciliation, for true restoration in our, all our relationships. So um, that's what we'll look at again this morning as we begin to look uh, more closely at the effects of the fall, the, the ruination of humanity in their relationship with God. So let me pray, and then we'll read from Genesis 3. Father, as always, we ask for your help. We confess we don't even know what kind of help we need. We might have an inkling of it, but um, we're not self-aware enough even to know our, our deepest need and our true need before you, and so we just pray for your help. We pray that you would meet us here in your word, that you would quicken us to your word and to your reality, that you would help us to see life and relationships and this whole world and ourselves in light of your revelation, your telling us what things are really like and what we really need in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would make that real to us as we consider your word this morning, that by your spirit you would help us to understand it and to accept it and to be changed by your truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, for years... uh, I used to be kind of surprised that the Bible didn't end right there, <laughs> that, that all we had from God's Word, uh, from the Holy Scriptures, was the first three chapters of Genesis, that God didn't just immediately destroy them. I mean, he had threatened their death, right? The, the covenant that he had made with Adam before, when he placed him in the garden, was you, you can have everything here. Everything's good for your enjoyment. Just don't eat this one fruit, and um, if you do, you will die. Dying, you will die on the day that you eat of that fruit. And so uh, we're under the assumption that there's this threat of death, this immediate death. On the day that you eat of it, dying, you will die. And um, so we expect when we come to this part of the scriptures that uh, they've sinned and then just blam, that's it. Annihilation, end of the Bible, right? End of the story of God's uh, dealings with us. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 says. And God promised those wages to Adam and Eve, to our first parents, uh, the day that they would eat of it. It doesn't look like Adam and Eve collected their wages, does it? Because they keep, keep going on, and they live, and they have, uh, have children, and they have, um, you know, humanity comes from them. And there's hundreds and thousands of years of uh, people going on. There's, there's still life, right? They didn't collect their wages for their sin immediately in the day that they ate of the fruit, Right? Um, and so some of our first thoughts are, well, did God go back on his word? Did he, did he just pull back on that? That was maybe a little bit too harsh for him to promise death to them. Or uh, we think, you know, God's actually just so gracious. He really is so gracious that he delayed punishment. He put it off, right? Um, but the more that you understand the way the Bible talks about life and death, the more you understand the meaning that the scriptures understand life and death, what that means in light of the scriptures, the more you realize, no, in fact, Adam and Eve did die immediately. The day they ate of that fruit, they died immediately. This is what Henry Blochet, who's a commentator, says about this passage. In the Bible, death is the reverse of life. It is not the reverse of existence. Death disintegrates the power to live. It is a diminished existence. In all the experiences of pain, discomfort, discord, and separation, 
we can recognize a kind of funeral procession. The narrative shows us that the threat, you shall die, is fulfilled in a multiplicity of ways. So the way the Bible understands life, Jesus gives us this as he prays to his father in John 17, um, in, in verse 3 there, he says that this is eternal life. This, this is what eternal life is, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Right? Eternal life consists of relationship with God, real knowledge, mutual knowledge, where God knows us and we know him, and we're in a good relationship with him. That's what life is, according to the scriptures. And so um, we get the, the sense then that uh, since they suffered the loss of that immediately, they died immediately, right? Um, uh, we watched Interstellar last night. I don't know if you've all seen that, but there's a, it's actually a really exciting movie, really good, interesting, science, you know, science fiction stuff it's right up my alley. But... Um, Part of the story is that there's, there's this one guy who's stranded on a planet in another galaxy, and he's all by himself for years. And when people finally come to rescue him, he says to them uh, that he was so desperate for relationships. He was so desperate because being with each other, he said, is a fundamental part of what makes us humans. Right? Here, here's a guy on another planet in another galaxy for years by himself, and he's a great man, he's, a, he's got kind of intestinal fortitude, he's a strong man, but it, it drove even him mad to be without relationships for, for that long. He says, being with each other is a fundamental part of what it means to be human, what it makes us human, right? And he's onto something there, they're onto something there. Life consists of relationships. That's what life is. You can draw an equal sign between life and relationships. Life equals relationships. That's what it means uh, in the scriptures. With God first, life is relationship with God first and also with others. Right? Um, so God has life in himself because he's triune, because he is a God of relationships, because he's three persons in relationship, in perfect communion, so that they are one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one being in three persons and we are made in his image, in that God's image. We're made for relationships with him and, and with each other. And so knowing him and being in that relationship, that's what eternal life is. That's what life is, according to the scriptures. And if that is true, then, uh, then pulling away from him, rejecting him, avoiding him, that doesn't just deserve death. Like death is some other kind of horrible, physical, primarily thing. It's that's what death is, pulling away from the God who is life, pulling away from the relationship that you were made for. If life consists of that relationship, essentially, then pulling away from it doesn't just deserve death. That's what death is. Okay? Death is that. And um, the scriptures talk about this everywhere. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's talking to people who are still breathing, right, functioning, uh, living physical beings. They weren't Obviously, dead, flat line, no brain activity, no heart function, uh, their lungs still working. Everything's still working physically, but they were dead in their trespasses and sins. That's what's true of all of us when we live apart from God, when we live outside of a relationship with him. Death, then, is the disintegration of relationships. 
Death really is the disintegration of relationships. And um, I was reminded of that uh, after my father died uh, in 2004. And uh, my mentor and pastor uh, did the sermon uh, for his funeral, even though my father was not a Christian, even though he basically burned all of his bridges relationally, even though I hadn't talked with him for uh, over a year. Um, and, it, and in a sense, he was like dead to all of his relationships and all of his family. Nobody had really talked to him for over a year. Um, my, uh, my pastor did the uh, funeral sermon, and uh, he said that this death is physically lying dead now, not breathing. Uh, his death was preceded by a series of smaller deaths over the years as his relationships disintegrated. Right. And um, so death is the disintegration of relationships. First and foremost, and ultimately, disintegration of relationship with God. And once that relationship is broken, all others follow immediately. Immediately. We're, uh, we die immediately on sinning and, and rebelling against God. And this is true because we broke relationship with God. You see it in Adam and Eve here, and you know it in your own life if you're honest with yourself. We broke relationship with God in order to pursue self-centered autonomy, in order to be gods for ourselves, in order to be in charge of our own lives, to, to um, look out for number one, right? Um, we have ourselves as a priority. Our autonomy is a priority, and that is why our relationship uh, with God is broken and, and uh, with other people is broken. And since, in that scheme, that scheme of sin, the pursuit of sin, the, the pursuit of autonomy, since that, uh, in that scheme, self is supreme, then it only makes sense that, um, I mean, if self is supreme, I'm going to maintain that at your expense. Because no matter how much I might like you, I don't care about you as much as I care about myself. Um, I'm going to maintain my selfish, self-centered autonomy at the expense of others. And, and that's the beginning of hell. Right? That's what hell really is. That's what hell really consists of. It's something of our own doing. And it's this unbearable paradox of unmaking ourselves. We're dismantling the image of God in us. We were made for relationships, and we're pulling that apart, and we're disintegrating our relationships living for ourselves right there in the presence of others, right there in some kind of relationship with others, right? Uh, but where they serve only as frustrating, constant reminders that we are in viola violation of, of reality. We're in violation of the reason and, and purpose for which we were created. And relationships around us serve to remind us of that all the time. And it becomes unbearable because we're selfish because we're uh, uh, pursuing autonomy. And that's what hell is. And um, it says in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence, from the face of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they're, they're afraid. They're taking flight. They're shrinking back from God, and they're using God's own good gifts to them as a sort of a shield. Uh, because really they have nothing else to hide behind than what God gave them. Having chosen, having, having chosen autonomy, 
they couldn't stand the threat of God's presence, the threat of his face, the threat of a relationship with him because it threatens their autonomy, and that's what they chose. Um, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, if you're trying to imagine yourself in this story, which I think we should, all of us, you can imagine the panic that they must have felt when, uh, when God calls to Adam, hiding among the trees, standing there, frozen, please don't notice me, <laughs> just keep walking by. Uh, we've probably felt that a similar panic if, uh, you know, your, your teacher in class is uh, going to ask you a very difficult question that you don't know the answer to, and you just sit there and mind your own business and don't make eye contact and hope that they don't call on you, and then they call on you. Oh, no. You know, what do I do? What do I do? I don't have the answer for that question. And then there's this dismay. Oh, no. He knows where I am. I can't hide from him. My existence, my survival depended on my hiding from him. But I can't hide from him. Oh, no. Um, And uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the first thing we become conscious of is that we are being addressed. Adam suddenly found that far from being the investigator, he was the one being investigated. Right? He had set himself up as the one who would, I'm going to judge God's word. I'm going to investigate and consider for myself whether God is good and I want to go with him or if I want to go this other direction. I'm, I'm the one setting myself up as judge, as investigator. Um, but Adam suddenly found that far from being the investigator, he was the one being investigated. God's word swings the spotlight around on us, on you. That's what his word does when it comes to you. Where are you? His word swings the spotlight onto you. You are the one under investigation. And you should read yourself into this story here. Maybe it's movie reference day. Uh, Never-ending story? How many of you remember never-ending story? How many of you remember enjoying it as a child and then watching it again as an adult and not enjoying it as much? <laughs> well, there's, uh, <clears throat> there's, some, there's some great scenes in it still. And there's this one where, if you know the story, I mean, the, the, the movie is about a child who's reading a book that's somehow magical, and he's reading about this, this magical world, and he becomes part of this story, right? He, he's, uh, he reads himself in the story. And there's this one uh, sort of terrifying moment where one of the main characters in the story is referring to the kid who's reading the story. And he says, he doesn't yet realize it, but he's reading his own story right now. (laughs) And it's, oh man, he's in a dark room and the wind's blowing and it's like a scary storm outside. He's like freaking out because he just realized that this this story, it's a pretty terrible story, uh, is, is about him and it involves him, right? And that's what we should know when we read Genesis 3, you may not realize it, but this story is about you right now. And just as Adam was under investigation by God, so also we are under investigation by God. He knows where we are. He doesn't ask that uh, because he can't quite locate Adam. He's done a pretty good job of hiding in the trees or anything. Uh, He knows where Adam and Eve are. He could have just vaporized the entire garden 
and been done with it, you know. He's calling Adam out of hiding for Adam's sake. There's something of grace in this calling out. Even though it's uncomfortable, even though Adam's terrified and dismayed that he gets found out, he's calling Adam out of hiding for Adam's sake. It's a gracious calling. It's a beckoning. Right? Come out of hiding and let's talk about what, what you've gotten yourself into. Right? Where are you? He's working to get Adam to come to terms with where he is, where, what he has become, right? the life that he's chosen. And still, it's interpreted by Adam as a threat. It's impossible for Adam not to interpret this as a threat to his autonomy when God means it as, as a way to start the reconciliation process. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is not a confession of sin, right? It's not a, a real confession of what's happening at the, kind of the root of the problem for Adam. John Calvin says that he fails to recognize the cause of shame. He's saying, I was afraid of you because I was ashamed, you know, because I was naked, so I hid. But he's failing to recognize the cause of his shame, which is his sin. I chose to leave you. I chose to rebel against you, to disobey you, to to pursue a life of pleasure and goodness and wisdom apart from you. So this is not a confession of sin. It's it's sort of an excuse for his behavior, for his hiding. God's caught me. I'd better spin this. And I'm still trying to deflect it from the core of what's really going on inside of me. I can't, I can't let God get to that point. I can't let him expose me on that level. Right? I'm hiding from God, and I'm talking about my shame, but I'm not saying it's because I despised you. I despised you, God. I, I chose life apart from you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't get down to that level. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God's peeling back those layers. He's trying to get down to the root, right? He's getting down to the root, again, kindly, for Adam's sake, to lead him to repentance. To lead him to repentance. And the root of the problem is his sin, his rebellion, his breaking relationship with God. And... um, and he resists still the reality, even though God gives him the opportunity to just say yes. Did you eat of the, the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And all he would have had to do is just let his guard down and say, yeah, I did. Right? Um, and he, re, he resists that reality and the consequences and the responsibility. He resists all of it in order to maintain his autonomy from God. And the man said... The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said that the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So it's sort of an admission of truth, but it does not admit, it does not accept the real guilt, the real responsibility, what was really happening inside their hearts uh, when they fell to temptation, when they sinned against God. There's blame shifting. Blame shifting. Yeah, I did it, but she did this. 
really the emphasis is on that. What's really wrong is over here. I did it, but it's mainly her fault. Right? Can you imagine then uh, the wreck of their relationship from that point on? Where they get kicked out of the garden and they're trying to build a shelter now out in the wilderness, outside of the garden, that first night, and Eve's sitting here thinking, man, I can't believe you threw me under the bus like that. Right? I can't believe you didn't take responsibility for that. Can you imagine the wreckage, the ruin in their relationships after that? Uh, you know, whenever I've done marriage counseling, about 99% of what everybody says basically amounts to that. I, I'm not exaggerating. About 99% of what everybody says basically amounts to I know I'm not perfect. I know I have this problem. But really, here's the big problem over here with this person. And the, the wreckage, the ruin in our relationship, it's primarily this person's fault. And let me tell you all about that. Let me tell you about how that made me feel. That's, uh, that's the way we are. I'm not perfect. Blame shift. We're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We're the kind of people who have to excuse ourselves at the expense of others. It's the only way to excuse ourselves, or so we think. Right? Um, why are you yelling at the kids, you might hear? <laughs> why are you yelling at the kids? Well, because they did this. He was hitting her. They broke this. I didn't like that. Why are you yelling at the kids? Because of what the kids were doing. Right? Now, you missed the point. Why are you yelling? It's because there's something wrong. It's because there's anger here. There's a lack of peace here, right? There's something wrong inside of me, which is why I yell at my kids. It doesn't matter what they're doing, right? Um, I'm yelling because I'm angry. And it's no surprise that I'm blaming my kids for my anger. It's no surprise that I immediately, instinctively, subconsciously shift the blame over to them when what's wrong in this relationship is primarily me. It's not a surprise that I do that. It's no surprise that I'm not even aware of doing that. That you're not even aware of doing that. That most of the time when you blame shift instantaneously, you are not aware of it. But that's no surprise. The Bible tells us all about these kinds of problems. That's what sinners do. We protect ourselves that way. Right? That's what's wrong with us. We protect ourselves by blaming other people. Henry Blochet again says that the effect of sin is the sin of denying sin. The effect of sin is more sin. And that sin expresses itself in denying sin. Like we're caught in a pretty bad spot. But this is what's really wrong with the world. This is what's really wrong with life. This is why we dwell in death. This is not real life. We're not in real relationship with God and with each other because of this. This is what's really wrong with us. The fact that I won't admit that I'm the problem. Remember that. <laughs> the thing that's really wrong in the world is that I won't admit that I'm the problem. Things are out of control at this point in the garden. Uh, they chose the way of autonomy. It was a terrible idea, but autonomy required them to insist. They have no terrible ideas. Autonomy requires you to insist on your autonomy and your uh, 
making yourself great and deflecting accusations that stand against you and defending yourselves against the reality and spinning the reality so that it doesn't really hit at the core. Right? That's what autonomy requires. It, it insists that we uh, say of ourselves, there's nothing wrong with us. It insists to make sure we can say there's nothing wrong with me. That's the main problem in the world, is that I, I have to say there's nothing wrong with me, or else it would be unbearable. And so we blame shift. That's like, it's very common. We do that uh, as easily as we breathe. You're shifting the blame to your family of origin. You've got problems in your life. You've got problems in your, in your relationship with your wife or your, your husband, your, your relationship with your kids. Well, family of origin. Right? I'm going to blame it on that. Um, yeah, your ultimate family of origin, we're blame shifters too. Right? Everybody does this. I do this. And again, the paradox of, of blame shifting is this abdicating of responsibility in order to preserve autonomy and supremacy. I'm supreme, but I'm giving up responsibility, and I'm putting it on somebody else. Right? Um, and ultimately, we'll even throw God himself under the bus. Yeah, I ate the fruit. But it was that woman that you gave me. Right? It was the woman that you gave me. If anyone's to blame here for the way the world is, for the way my relationships are, it must be God. He started this whole thing. Um, so how do you coax a real confession out of someone like that? Because it doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen in Genesis 3. Right? How do you coax a real confession out of someone like Adam and Eve? How do you get a blame shifter? Someone who immediately diverts attention and responsibility and blame to somebody else without even considering for a moment, I might be the one who's in the wrong. Deeply wrong. Essentially wrong. How do you get a blame shifter to take an honest look at themselves? How do you reconcile people like that to a God who is life, who is love, so that they can live again in relationship with God? How do you start that kind of a process? How do you fix what's broken, what's really broken, the main problem in the world, and, and restore these relationships? You only do it through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. God the Son, he came to love us. He said he came to seek and save the lost. Where are you? I'm going to tell you where you are, and I'm going to join you there. I'm going to join you there and take the wrath that you deserve. He gave his life for us to take the, the real burden of our real guilt that we are unwilling even to acknowledge about ourselves. He took the real guilt on himself at the cross. And so the cross <clears throat> stands tall as an instrument of condemnation, and it proclaims clearly here is what you deserve. Being cut off from God and from all others. What you see in the life of Jesus Christ, what you see at the end of the Gospels there, uh, almost the end, just before the resurrection, don't forget that. Um, what you see there is what you deserve. Every ounce of suffering, of alienation from God, being separated from his Father, and, and being separated from others. All relationships cut off. Cut off from the land of the living. Right? That's, uh, 
That's what the cross proclaims is, uh, is waiting for people like us because we've chosen the way of autonomy. We've chosen to cut off our relationships. But it also proclaims, the cross does, <clears throat> the glorious love of God as Jesus willingly, willingly suffered our disintegration in order to reintegrate us, even into God's own family. He suffered our disintegration in order to reintegrate us. He hung there, and he became a full and thorough confession of our sin for us. He became that, and he experienced true death, the true separation from God his Father, so that we who actually commit sins, because he never did, he suffered our condemnation even though he was innocent, as our gospel reading said, uh, so that we who actually commit sins could have his life, which means his own relationship with the Father, so that we could have that, so that we could have eternal life in Jesus Christ. He experienced death for us. And because he did that, because he owned your sins, sins that you were unwilling to own, sins that you remain unwilling to own, and you, you will die unwilling to own all your sins, because he owned all of your sins for you and he suffered hell itself for you, then you can know that it's actually safe to confess your sins. It's actually safe to look there all the way down at the root and say, yeah, this world's messed up because of me. And our relationship is broken and our marriage suffers and our kids are just getting mangled in my household because of me. You can know that it's safe to confess your sins because he owned it all for you. He owned your sins. The most terrible obstacle has been overcome. The most frightening, dismaying aspect of our brokenness has already been overcome at the cross. You have been restored to relationship with God in spite of the fact that you are a sinner. And that restoration will work its way out into your other relationships as you begin to apply the gospel then to your own heart and uh, in other areas, in other relationships. You can say, yeah, um, Jesus frees me to say my selfishness is the main problem in my marriage. Or I yelled at my kids because I'm angry because I'm controlling, because I want to be king here. And people aren't accommodating that. I was upset at uh, people at work, or I was upset with people at church because they didn't give me what I thought I deserved, which was supremacy and the honor that a king deserves. Right? Um, we can acknowledge that's actually what's going on inside of us. You can stop blame shifting and making excuses. Really, it's my wife's fault. It's the kid's fault for being unruly. It's other people's fault in the church. Every single one of them is messed up, not me. Right? You can stop doing that kind of blame shifting and making excuses and just tell the truth about where you are and what you've become because you know when God is pursuing you and he enables you to do that, it's for your good. It's so that you can have real honesty and real relationship again, real transparency. Because in Jesus Christ, confessing your sins is not a dead end. It's not a dead end to acknowledge who you are before God. By God's grace, if you're caught sinning, you won't be destroyed. Because Jesus already was caught for you. He already suffered that fate for you. 
and the destiny that he deserves, that glorious destiny that none of us deserve except for Jesus, is freely granted to you, even to people like you. So as you start to experience the freedom of the gospel, to stop fearing self-examination and confession of sin and actually admit what's wrong with you, you can start to get to the real root of things and see real transformation. Now you know actually what you should pray about. Maybe your life shouldn't be filled up with prayers like, please make my kids more obedient so that I stop getting angry at them. Maybe your life should be filled with prayers like, please give me peace so that I stop, I stop being an angry person who just yells at the drop of a pin. You can start praying about the right thing. You get to the real root of things. You can see the help that you actually need. And it's deep inside of you where you need this help, where you need this transformation. And that's the kind of transformation that God gives you, that he is more than willing to give you to make you more like Christ. Before, when you were afraid, when you were unwilling to admit that your life was hell because of your self-centeredness, You were in denial. You're living in an illusion. You're self-blinded. You're impossible to help. Adam was impossible to help. But now that you've taken the most painful step imaginable by God's grace, because of Jesus, because of the cross, you've taken what for you is the most painful step imaginable in honestly confessing your sins to him and to each other, you start to see things more clearly. You see how broken your relationships actually were how much you contributed to that problem, and and now how you know that God can really change everything. He really can change everything because he can change you from the inside out. That's what you need, and he can do it. If his grace can enable you to confess your sins, then his grace can do anything. If his grace can enable people like you to confess your sins, his grace can do anything. His grace can change the world. In fact, his grace frequently works through your confessing your sins. His grace, his redemption comes to other people through your confession of sins. A lot of the time, the freedom that comes from the gospel, that freedom, that real freedom, to enable us to say out loud things that people just don't say out loud about themselves. Yeah, you want to hear the wreck that my life is, that I, the trouble that I got myself into, the trees that I was trying to hide behind? You want to hear all that? I can tell you because of the freedom of the gospel and the, that freedom to admit things about ourselves that we're all prone to hide and excuse away and blame shift is startlingly powerful. Confession is contagious. Right? Confession is contagious because the freedom of the gospel, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And people want that same freedom People need that same freedom. When you start to demonstrate, demonstrate how, how the cross of Christ frees you in confession of your sins, others might see that maybe it's not so hard to be honest with ourselves about who I am, about what I've done. If you can confess your sins because you're trusting in Christ, it might win other people to confess their sins and trust in Christ. There just might be grace for people like them if there's grace for people like you. You can imagine that if Adam understood God's grace, if he gave up his autonomy right there and he confessed his fault before God, um, 
Eve probably would have seen their reconciliation and she probably would have followed suit. You can imagine that. God has redeemed you through the costly grace of his own son, and he can use your redemption to testify about his grace to other people to further spread the redemption that the gospel brings throughout the ruins of this world, bringing the dead back to life. He can do that. He can do that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we still feel a sense of reluctance um, to open ourselves up to you, even though we have very clearly the full assurance that when we do so, you will not condemn us, but you'll save us from our sins and from ourselves, that you've already done so through the life and death and resurrection of your own son, Jesus. We pray that that gospel would... uh, find a a deeper root in our hearts, a more constant uh, place in our minds, that your gospel truly would transform us from the inside out to make us the kind of people who honestly confess our sins as much as we can to ourselves and to you and to other people, so that uh, the good news of your grace and your trustworthiness and your character, your nature as the one who is gracious and loving, and merciful, and forgiving would be evident in our lives because of the freedom we experience to confess our sins, that your grace and a testimony of your grace would be held before those who are closest to us in our lives because they uh, would see the way that you're at work in our lives to bring us to a place of humility and confession before you. We pray that this would be true. For us, we pray that you would re-knit us to yourself and to your purposes for our lives in this world, that you would re-knit, reweave our relationships in this world, that you would bring life back to death, that you would bring reintegration back where we have disintegrated things through our own autonomous rebellion against you. We pray that you would do that. We've seen you um, start to do that throughout history and, and um, especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that you will complete what you have begun on the day of Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day. And until then, we pray that you would use our lives to testify to your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.